Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Let's pray together. Jesus, there is, there is no one like you. And we just want to come in, in this moment, this glorious moment, focusing on you. Life that we have in you that is eternal and has already begun in the here and now. And we know that it isn't all that we long for yet, and we know that it isn't all that you have promised and are fulfilling. But God, it's good. Life in you is good because you are good. Jesus, you, you are good, and we, we worship you. We praise you. Not, not for what you have given us, and you've given us so much, but just because of who you are in this moment, just because of who you are, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, wonderful counselor, mighty God. We love you, Jesus. Your strength and our comfort and our hope your grace and truth and mercy. And we thank you, Jesus. And we come now in these moments wanting to surrender ourselves again to life in you, to your words. And so as we open your word in a moment and work our way through it and walk through it and think about it and meditate and marinate in it, Lord, I just pray that you would have your way in our hearts. We want to submit to you that way, Jesus, because we know there's nothing like life in you. Some of us, we gather today and we need to repent, turn, turn back away from ways that we've trusted more in, in our own flesh or in the ways of the world than in you this week, and we come back knowing that in, in your sight, turning around in repentance is like coming home to our, our beloved Father. We come. Some of us come today desperately in need of a touch from you, a healing from you, an encouraging word from you, Jesus. So we come. And we come giving thanks, knowing that in you, those things can be found. Trusting in you, believing in you, putting all our hope in you. And so we come, and we pray for your guidance now, Lord. It's in your name we pray, the name above every other name, Jesus. Amen. Well, you may have a seat. We're glad to have you with us today. And uh, as my dear brother Garrett already mentioned, we had a wonderful time in the park last week. And if you were unable to attend, I wish you would just go ahead and make plans to attend next year. We're going we're gonna to try to hit that first Sunday in November again. Um, God delivered a very beautiful day uh, this past week, and we're grateful for that. Um, also grateful for something else today, and I want to take a moment uh, in our service to, to do something and, and, and be grateful for something. And let me say this, next week, our whole service is going to kind of circulate around that. We're going to share in communion together. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take next Sunday to get ready for a whole week of giving thanks to our God, okay? And, and next Sunday is going to be the launching pad for, for that, so I encourage you to to, you know, participate in that and be a part of that um, if you're able to do that. 
Uh, but today, I want us to take a moment and, and give thanks uh, to some people. It's okay to do that in church. You know, we can thank people. And I want to thank a very special group of people that are part of our, our family, our, our church family. And if you're a guest, we want to include you in this as well. Um, if you have ever, some of you know that uh, Friday was Veterans Day. If you have ever served in uh, the armed forces of the, uh, these United States, I'm going to ask you to stand. Come on, stand up. Don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed. Come on, stand up. We want to say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your service. Uh, we, we, we appreciate it so very much. I'm, I'm going to ask you to remain standing because I'm not finished asking people to stand. Um, if your spouse is here with you, because I know spouses of those in the armed forces, they also... Uh, Sacrifice. So I'm going to ask those spouses to stand too, um, if you're with them. Or if you're, you're a, a spouse of someone who was in the armed forces and your spouse isn't here with you, please feel free to stand because we want to we thank you too. Thank you. We want to thank you for your service and we want to we pray for you today and, and give thanks to you as we do. So Father God, we come in Jesus' name to give thanks for people, God, that you uniquely designed and uniquely placed in service to this nation, which means to us, to, to each and every one of us, to provide protection, God, for uh, this country, this nation. And as we do that, we think about, uh, God, those who are here at home in the room with us today, but we also think about uh, brave men and women who are scattered all over this globe uh, in service of our nation, in service of us, protecting things like our freedom to gather in this building to praise your holy name uh, unhindered. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for their sacrifice and their commitment. We pray your blessings on them in a special way for their service to both their country and to so many of them I know to you in that act. Bless them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be Maybe seed it. God bless you. Um, we are, one, one more thing that I need to, to say something about is this afternoon at 4 p.m. Uh, in room 102, 105, we're going to be hosting, um, Pastor Dean and I are going to be hosting our Exploring Church Membership Seminar. If you have been kind of hanging out at the river for a while um, and you're wondering, well, what do I need to do to kind of take my next step in, in growing in my faith? Uh, maybe the thing that you need to do is to take the step of uniting with a local church family. Um, and so I'd encourage you, we're, we're not going to lock you in a room and not let you out till you join. We're not going to do that. Uh, you will have an opportunity kind of at the end of our time today where we explain kind of why we do what we do, what we think God has called us to do as a church. I'm having a problem getting my little thing here to open. There we go. Um, I, I, you know, I, I probably can't talk in walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. But anyway, um, just uh, I want to encourage you to maybe consider showing up today at 4 and uh, let us walk through Exploring Church membership with you and give you an opportunity to make a decision. Yeah, I want in. I want to be a part of this family and uh, I want to serve the Lord here and, and be uh, on mission with God through this church. And if, if God has called you to that end, I would, I would encourage you to do that. Um, today we're going to be talking uh, about... Uh, uh, an interesting passage of scripture from the Sermon on the Mount. We're considering continuing our study uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that I want to do this morning is I want to start with um, I want to start with a question. 
okay? Let me start with a question. And here's the question. At what age do you believe children become capable of lying? Some people, you know, I've heard say when they learn to talk. Um, and that may be true. Interestingly, there was a study done in, in Japan, in Tokyo, at a university there. And the study concluded that even babies who uh, cannot communicate with language as of yet are capable of deception. That they can, um, through this thing called crying, get adults to do what they want to when they want to. They don't have to be wet or poopy or hungry. They just want some attention, you know? And so they cry. Now, there are all kinds of schools of thought on what you do when your baby cries, pick them up, leave. I, I ain't getting into that, okay? I'm, I'm not touching that one. We're not here uh, about that today. But um, whether or not you believe that study to be accurate or not, one of the things that most people come to understand is that children at a very early age begin to manipulate the truth. And, uh, you know, thank God they're not really good at it. And I want to demonstrate how not good at it they are uh, through a little video. So if you will turn your attention to this video, I'd appreciate it. The truth about all of us at one time or another in one way or another we've all had a sprinkle on our face you know we, we've all we've all been there um, and you know the question is is where where do these little people learn to lie and the answer is from big people like us that's 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 where they learned it there was a a famous study done out of the University of Massachusetts. It's been uh, about two decades ago. Uh, and they were studying this, this how, how we choose to be deceitful. And they were doing it specifically in the context of uh, acquaintances or maybe even strangers meeting and having kind of a small talk conversation. And they discovered that in the span of 10 minutes in one of those kinds of, kinds of moments and meetings that people tend to lie between two and three times in a 10-minute conversation. It's a lot of lying in a short period of time. Now, one of the interesting things about lying is it's cross-cultural. It's found in every culture in the world. People lie about motives and about, you know, why they're late to meetings and about what they really said. People lie about how much money they make on their taxes, you know, expense accounts, uh, lie to their spouses, to their kids, to their bosses, lie during games we play, you know, especially if you golf, um, you know, that, that, that's kind of a common practice, I think. You know, somebody will say, um, 
what would you, how many strokes? And they say, give me a five. Well, did you hit it in five? Or what does that mean, give me a five? Does it, does it, did you really, was it six strokes for you? And why didn't you just say four if you're going to lie about it? Well, because you, if you said four, you'd feel like a big fat liar. If you say five, it's just, nah, just a fudge. You know, so we, we kind of we manipulate the, the, those kinds of, of things. Everything that, that we do in life. And friends, this is part of the human condition. And Jesus is going to address this. We want to we wanna speak truth, but... You know, we're prepared to lie if, if it accomplishes what we need it to. It's kind of like that little girl said in Sunday school one Sunday, a lie is an abomination to the Lord, but it's a very present help in time of trouble. You know, that's, that's kind of how we, we do that. We, we lie to get stuff. We lie to sell stuff. We lie to impress people. We lie to get out of trouble. People lie at church. All over our culture today. We expect to be lied to by our politicians. We expect to be lied to by the media. We, you know, fake news, um, fact checkers, spin doctors. We, we, we just kind of, our culture's designed around it. And here's the deal. God knows about everyone. And I wondered this week, does God, does God, when we do that, does God look at us as that child with a little sprinkle on her face? You know, is that, is that the way God... God, God sees us. Now, how long has this been going on? Well, if you were to open your Bible back to the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, you'll see something like this. God comes to Adam and says, Adam, what you eating? Nothing. It's that woman. Oh, okay. Eve, what'd you eat? Nothing. It was a serpent. You know, we, we, we just don't want to deal in, in, in the truth on this. And Jesus knew this. He understood it. He came to save us anyway. Very, very early in Jesus' ministry, the gospel writer John in John chapter 2 tells us about how people had started following Jesus because of signs and wonders that he was doing. They wanted to see that. They maybe needed a, a miracle in their lives. But in John chapter 2, verse 24, it says, but Jesus didn't trust them. Some translations say he didn't entrust him, himself to them because he knew human nature. Jesus understands. Jesus knows. Jesus sees. Jesus has a better way. And that's what we want to talk about today. You know, you, you've heard that old saying, you can fool some of the people all of the time. You met some of them kind of gullible people? You can, meet, you, you, you can fool some of the people all of the time. And you can fool all the people some of the time. But friends, you can never fool Jesus. You just, not, not, not any time, you know? And, and when we lie, he sees and he knows. And he loves us still, but he has a better way. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses this. He, he steps into this. Now, this, this passage that we're going to look at today in the Sermon on the Mount is unique in nature because Jesus comes at this section a, a little bit differently. If you've got your Bibles, you may want to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're also going to end up and spend some time in Matthew chapter 26. But in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to go ahead and head there, a couple of weeks back, we talked about anger. And when Jesus started talking about anger, he said, you've heard that it was said of old. And then he quoted from the Ten Commandments, you know, uh, do not murder. 
And then he goes on to teach about what that looks like. And then, you know, a few weeks ago, we talked about, uh, about lust. And Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, quotes the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And then this week, instead of that rhythm where we would expect him to go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, when he's going to talk about this, this issue of not telling the truth, you would expect that he would go there to that passage that said, you, you have heard it said of old, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But that's not what Jesus does. And so I want us to look at what Jesus does on this issue because he comes at it just a little bit differently. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, Jesus said this, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head. For you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more, notice this, anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we may read those words and wonder, okay, you know, why is Jesus dealing with this swearing by heaven thing and swearing by earth thing and Jerusalem and and head, and you may, you know, if, if you want to be kind of, you know, mechanical about it, you could look at it and say, I never swore by my head or by Jerusalem or anything like that. You may think, check, got it, don't have to worry about this one. And, you know, some people take this so far to the extreme that they, they won't do things like they won't join the military because you got to take an oath. They, they won't testify in court. They, all, all kinds of things. They won't do anything that requires oath-taking. Now, friends, I could talk about this uh, a little bit more extensively, but I don't have time for that. I just want to give you the, sh- the short version about that. This is not Jesus' big concern here. Jesus is not telling you to never take a- a- an oath. That's, that's not what he- he's saying. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is showing us a way to live that is a surpassing kind of righteousness, a a better way of goodness, life in the kingdom of God. And he's contrasting that continuously. He's contrasting that with the conventional interpretations of the Old Testament in his day. And he's pointing to what's really going on. Jesus is getting at the heart, and the heart of his concern is what's going on in our heart. I want to go back to little kids for just a minute because little kids will do this when they want you to believe them because they need you to believe them so they can get you to do what they want, want you to do. Little kids will, you know, will say something and then they may you know, make a promise like this, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And if you don't believe them, you, you know what that means? That you're going to condemn them to a coffin with a needle in their eye and it's going to be your fault. So you got to believe them. Because they're, they're trying to control and manipulate you. Every culture in our world has that form of lying contextually in it. Where oaths and promises and those kinds of rants are made for the purpose of trying to get you to do what I want you to do. The great German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was writing uh, on this passage of the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, oaths give evidence to lying. We try to take these great oaths oftentimes in our normal everyday speech when we're trying to to convict 
somebody and convince somebody of, of, of something. And oftentimes these oaths take on some kind of form of bringing something sacred in. In the ancient world, somebody might have said, you know, ancient pagan world, uh, you know, may the gods deal severely with me if I'm not telling you the truth. Some, something like that. Just some kind of phrase like that. You know, today we'll hear people say things like, I swear on my mother's grave. Or I swear on a stack of Bibles. Or I swear on all that's holy. Have you ever heard that kind of language used? You know, I'm not going to ask you if you ever used that kind of language, but, you know, you'll deal with that with the Lord. Um, see, oaths were around in the ancient world, too. They, they were prevalent. Uh, now, please hear me say this. Israel, God's people, were taught in God's word to make oaths to God. Look at this from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. And often... You know, they would acknowledge God's presence in, in a ceremony of something. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 22, we see this with Abraham. It says, uh, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand, that idea of raising your hand to swear something. He says, I've raised my hand uh, to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath. And some of you have been in a situation, maybe in a courtroom, where you've had to, you know, put your hand on the Bible, raise your hand, and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's still kind of used today. That comes right out of this passage in Genesis 14, 22. Now, in Jesus' day, very devout Jews, they might swear on Jerusalem or on heaven or on their head, but they would refrain from using the name of God. They wouldn't use God's name because they were afraid they might misuse it. And so they wouldn't swear on that, so they would substitute. They would play that swap game where they'd fill in like, Oh, the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, or, or heaven itself, where God is. And, and that's kind of the backdrop, if you would, of what Jesus is addressing here. And Jesus, as he always does, he just goes straight for the jugular. He just goes straight for the heart of the matter, dealing with this whole system of how we think about using our words. And he's addressing the underlying problem. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we put up a, an image of an iceberg. And we said, you know, what we see of an iceberg is about this much of this ginormous block of ice floating in the ocean. And most of the iceberg is underneath. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here. What was beneath the surface? What's going on beneath this, this issue? You know, a lot of times, you know, when, when we're not telling the truth, we end up trying to use pressure or guilt, this little song and dance, or attempting to get somebody else to do what we want them to do and we'll you know say things like i promise i promise i promise you know i i need you i need you to do this see jesus understood what was going on in that day and he understands what's going on in 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 this day that we are oftentimes desperate to get somebody else to believe what we want them to believe because we think it will get them to do what we want them to do and because of that instead of just simply saying hey Here's the information. Here's what's good and right and true. Now you have the freedom to decide. Instead of, instead of doing that, we pressure one another. We try to manipulate each other. We try to override the other's judgment in order to get out of you what we want out of you. So swearing an oath in this passage that we're looking at was just an example of you know, what was going on in that day that, you know, in our day might be called song and dance or might be called, you know, we were spinning the truth or something like that. But now Jesus is on the scene. And Jesus is ushering in and opening up to anyone who would come in 
his kingdom. And in it, a fresh way to look at life, a powerful, different way of looking at life, where loving, loving your neighbor, which was, Jesus said, was part of the greatest commandment, to love God, the Lord your God, with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That, that, that's, that's a biggie, Jesus said, biggest commandment. And if we're going to do that in the kingdom of God, loving your neighbor means that I recognize that God gave you a will. And God gave you your own little kingdom for the purpose of submitting it to him. And then you start to recognize and see that person has, you know, a, a personhood, if you would. And it, it, it's central to that is that they have their own will. And when we try to pressure or manipulate somebody, Jesus says, we're destroying relationships. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your life become one in which you're saying, I, I honor your capacity to decide because I've chosen to love you now. I've chosen to give you that kind of freedom. And I do that because I've abandoned the idol of thinking everything's about me, that it's got to be about my kingdom coming and my, being, my will being done. And instead, I'm no longer worshiping in that idol. I'm worshiping God, and I'm saying, I want your kingdom to come, and I want your will to be done. And in that context, you can begin to tell the truth. See, here, here's the deal. You can tell somebody the truth without loving them, but when we lie to somebody, we are not loving them fully. We are not loving them completely. In chapter 5 of The Divine Conspiracy, and it's a great chapter in that book, the fifth chapter, uh, Dr. Willard is writing about really the Sermon on the Mount, and he makes this statement about this section of the passage. He says, kingdom rightness respects the sole need of human beings to make their judgments and decisions solely from what they have concluded is best. It means I look at you and I want to give you the best information. I want what's best for you, but I've got to walk away and give you the right to choose on that. Now, one of the things that I've heard, and you may have heard this before, that the secret to telling the truth, always telling the truth, is to predetermine that you're going to tell the truth before you find yourself in that situation. You just go ahead and, and, and predetermine that, that. That's the secret to always telling the truth. But that's not the secret to always telling the truth. We're going to look at what the secret is. Um, it's, it's a little bit deeper than that. And we're going to look at it through the illustration of the life of a devoted follower of Jesus. Now, just FYI, if this morning you begin to feel maybe guilt or shame, God doesn't want that. He does want you to feel conviction. But if you start feeling something like that, maybe you want to take solace in knowing that some of the greatest heroes of our faith found in, in this book— we're big fat liars. Seriously. Adam and Eve, we've already talked to, uh, uh, about them. But you can see it with Abraham and, and Sarah and Moses and Aaron and Isaac and Rebecca and King David and Samson. You just see it in, in all of those great Bible here. It's all over the Bible. But I want us to trace just one today. Just the, this, this development of a lie in the life of one. It was a spectacular one. Um, it's one that we're familiar with. And it occurred on the night before Jesus would be crucified. And it was the Apostle Peter. And I want us to look at how it developed and what, what took place and how 
the kingdom of God made a difference in Peter's life on this issue. So if you want to flip to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 33, Jesus, well, verse, before verses 33, Jesus has just said to his disciples um, in the upper room, you're all going to deny me and, and run away and reject me and tell people you never knew me. This is how Peter responds to him in verse 33. Though all, every one of them fall away because of you. I mean, Peter's basically saying, yeah, I, I, Jesus, I wouldn't trust these guys either. I could see them doing just that. You know, they're all, he, Peter's throwing them under the bus. He said, even if all of them do it, I will never fall away. Next couple of verses, Jesus looks at Peter and he challenges this. And Jesus said, Peter, truly I tell you, truly I tell you, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then look what Peter says. He, he responds, Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Here's the question. Do you believe in that moment that Peter believed what he was saying? I do. I absolutely believe that Peter believed what he was saying. I believe Peter said it with all sincerity. I believe there may have even been tears coming down, you know, his face because he was so convinced that he was going to do that because he loved Jesus. He was convinced of his sincerity. And you know what happens to us a lot of times? We're convinced of our sincerity. Peter had predetermined, remember the secret? Peter had predetermined that he was going to tell the truth no matter what. Now, those of you who know the story, how'd that work out for Pete? It didn't work out so good. That is not the secret, the full secret. Now, it's helpful. There's a starting place there, but it's not, it's not it in its fullness, you know, because just hours later, Jesus is on trial for his life. Peter shows up in a courtyard right outside of where that trial is taking place, most likely because of the way structures and, and buildings were uh, built in that day, most likely out in the courtyard, he could make eye contact with Jesus. He could see Jesus in this trial. And in verse 69, it tells us this, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But look what, what happened. Peter said, it says, Peter denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you mean. What you talking about? I mean, he just, it's just, I don't understand. What, what are you talking about? Now, notice that Peter does not ever say, I was never, ever, ever with Jesus here. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. It's not this blunt, kind of bald-faced lie. Peter, Peter kind of says this, you know, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. He may have even convinced himself at this moment he doesn't know what he's talking about. You get good at lying, you can do that. That can happen. You can just kind of get caught up in, in your own lie. But I want you to notice how, where Peter goes from. How does he go from I'm ready to die to I'm ready to lie? Well, friends, the, the foundation for telling the truth is that I've got to first die to myself and tr trust in God. That's what Jesus said. We have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and, and, and follow him. No matter what. See, if, if I believe the lie that I'm, I have to, I have to, I'm the only one who's going to take care of myself. Nobody else is going to help me. There, there's, God's not going to do that. I've got to take care of myself. I'll start believing that lie, and then I'll start fending for myself. And so what I'll do is I will keep a lie in the toolbox so that when I need it, I can just yank that sucker out. 
It's only when we come to the place where our trust in God, a good and beautiful God, a God who has promised to be with us, to deliver us, only when we get to the place where we're trusting in, in that God can we begin to let go of the lie, get it out of our toolbox, and live a different way. And Peter is on this very hard road of learning that, but he does learn it. But let's walk through it because it continues on. Look at verse 71. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I want you to notice that, G that Peter's positioning his body differently. I want you to notice how, the, how his body moves through this because his body is moving farther away from Jesus at every venture. He's moving farther and farther away from Jesus. So he leaves the courtyard, and now he's moved to what is called the entrance to the courtyard, but in Peter's eye, it's the exit. He's trying to get the heck out of Dodge, quite frankly. He's trying to get away from this because if he knows, he, if he continues to stay too close to Jesus, he may, he may slip up and admit he knows him. So he's, he's pulling away. Now, there's all kinds of research done about how our bodies give us away when we lie because our bodies are repulsed by it They're, because what's happening is when we lie we're destroying our own, our own souls we're creating this disconnection with reality for our bodies and our bodies our bodies can't stand this there's all kinds of research on that i, I remember um there was a dear brother who used to be a part of our church he was um a highway patrolman and i was doing some discipling in his life and some days I would ride up to Columbia with him, and, you know, uh, he would drop me off at Starbucks, and we'd talk, because it was about an hour and a half drive up there. We'd talk on the way up there about things of the Lord, things that God was doing. He'd drop me off at Starbucks. I'd work on message. Um, at lunchtime, he'd come. We'd meet and do that. He'd drop me back off at Starbucks or whatever. Well, one day he said, I want to do lunch at, uh, at my office. And so we go to, the, to his office, and he's got uh, some, some food there. And uh, at some point he says, I want to I take you down and, and introduce you to someone. So he takes me down into the basement of the facility of the South Carolina Highway Patrol, and he takes me into this room, and there's this guy in there, and there's this machine in there. And it's a lie detector. And he has prearranged for me to be hooked up to that thing, and he's going to ask me questions. And we got into a couple of questions, and at, at some point I started taking things off. I said, ain't no more. G His name was... G Peralta. I said, ain't no more G. We done here, baby. Get me out of this room. You know, the, the, there's this, this thing in us, but our bodies, and that's why lie detectors work, because our bodies try to even reject when we lie, because it begins to destroy and separate our soul. It fractures us. It disintegrates us at that level, and so it disintegrates every connection we have. It disintegrates our connection with one another. And it begins to push us away from Jesus. Look at verse 72. And again, this is Peter. It says, he denied it with no. So he's, going, he's gone now from saying, you know, what are you talking about? I don't even know what you're talking about. Look what he says now. With an oath, he says, I do not know this man. Peter could not get them to believe him the very first time when he said, I don't know what you're talking about. So now he's got he's to do something else. He's got to kind of power up on his life so he takes an oath we don't know what the oath was it might have been something like cross my heart hope to die we, we don't know what this actually looks like maybe he swore by jerusalem or or by heaven or something god is my witness I, we don't know but he he now he, he ups his lying game 
and it becomes more direct because this time he is now saying i know what you're talking about now but i don't know that man do you notice what he's been incapable of saying thus far he's been incapable of saying the name of jesus because when we lie to somebody else part of what's taking place is we are corrupting in our mind their personhood we're corrupting their them as an individual and and this this just really captured my heart this week as i was walking through this is he could not speak the name of jesus even his body language was pushing farther and farther uh, away from jesus and so friends it's true when we lie to one another we push ourselves farther away from from each other because in that act we, we are in some ways denying the personal autonomy and authority and the image bearing of God in that other person. Let's keep following Peter, verse 73. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Here's basically what's happening. Jesus and Peter were both from the northern part of the nation called Galilee. It was a more rural part of the nation. And the people down south in the big city of Jerusalem thought of those rural Galileans as the hicks and rednecks. That's just kind of how they saw them. They, They thought of them that way. And so they were now associating Peter with Jesus based on that. And in this moment, Peter is feeling... Have you ever chased a roach like into a corner? You know, and tried to stomp on him? Peter's feeling a little bit like that roach that's been chased into a corner right now. Watch how he comes out. It says, then he, being Peter, began to, verse 74, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Now, the way that this is worded in the original language it, there is some confusion about how, who exactly Peter was cursing. ESV tells us that he was kind of cursing himself. Um, it can actually be translated, he was cursing himself. In other words, he, he was cursing. Um, we don't know who. Uh, a couple of theologians or, or uh, experts in Greek language translate this, that he was actually cursing Jesus that he was actually cursing Jesus in this moment, that he was basically calling down a curse from God to strike Jesus dead. And I don't know him. But that that was kind of what's going on. And so we we see in this moment, Peter has gone from, you know, saying, Jesus, I'll stand with you no matter what, if I have to die, to, to one who now his God is not Jesus. His God's his own skin. And he'll do anything to save his skin in in that moment. And in that moment, the Bible tells us that rooster crowed. Verse 75, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then there's this, this statement that is filled with human suffering and pain. And it says about Peter that he went out and wept bitterly. In that moment, Peter is now getting as far away from Jesus as he possibly can get. Did you notice the progression? He was in the courtyard where he could probably see Jesus. He gets kind of challenged, he lies, kind of steps away from Jesus a little bit more, 
tries to make his way to the exit. He's in the exit now, and he gets challenged again. And then all of a sudden, he's got to run as far away as he can get. And he's broken. And that's, that's how we find Peter here. Now, in his brokenness, does he think back to the Sermon on the Mount? He was there. Does he think back to the words of Jesus that you have heard said of old? You know, don't break your oaths. But I say to you, don't even make one. And Peter did. Trying to manipulate, trying to get those people to believe him. But friend, here's the part I want to get to because that's not the end of the story. Here's, here's the beautiful gospel message for us big fat liars. Here's, here's the truth, the hope that we find in Jesus. One of the commentators I read uh, about this talked about that in, in ancient literature of that day, you would never find a story like this recorded where someone of, of Peter's ilk, if you would, a backwood fisherman, would be seen uh, in such a way that you would want to sympathize with them. But see, the Bible's written for people in the kingdom of God so that, you know, you don't have to be a king, you don't have to be a prominent citizen, you don't have to be anything like that to be worthy of sympathy and empathy from the king of kings and the lord of wars in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God raises up the broken and humble. And in the kingdom of God, those who are proud and haughty, they just become bit players in the greatest story on the planet. That's what, that's what happens to them. You know, that's part of, the, part of the Beatitudes in this moment. We're seeing come to life. You remember Jesus, one of the Beatitudes, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are they who mourn because they will receive what? They'll be comforted. And we're going to get to see that happen in Peter's life. We're going to get to see the kingdom of God break through in, in, in Peter's heart. And Peter learns to live in his grace. And, you know, it was the greatest wreckage of his life, the greatest failure of his life. But it is going to be the place where the grace of God gets unfolded and poured out. You know, the story continues that Jesus was crucified. He was raised from the dead after being uh, laying in that tomb. On the third day, he was raised from the dead and early that morning women go to women that were disciples of jesus they go to that that grave that tomb and it's empty and there's an angel there and the angel gives them some instructions they tell him that jesus is risen and they the angel says this but go tell his disciples mark chapter 16 verse 7 go tell his disciples and peter now was peter one of the disciples had he just told them go tell the disciples why do you add on Peter? Because Jesus wanted that message to get to Peter that he was still calling him by his name. His name mattered to Jesus. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Jesus' grace was going to be big enough for Peter, and he wanted Peter to get that. See, Jesus was not done with Peter. He wanted Peter to know there was more grace in this moment because of the cross. There was more mercy available than Peter could ever imagine. And the scriptures uniquely point this out, that somewhere after the resurrection, Jesus had a private meeting with Peter. I think to put him back together to restore him. In Luke chapter 24, verse 34, uh, these men who had had this encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they come back to Jerusalem to pour, report what they've seen. They give their report, and this is what the disciples say. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. That's another name for Peter. 
He appeared privately to, to Peter. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, Paul writes these words. Uh, he was seen by Peter and then by the remainder of the 12. He was, he was seen that way, first by Peter. See, Jesus promises that when we live in the freedom of death to self, when we live in the freedom that comes from that, and we choose to live in the power of the cross, in the righteousness of Jesus, we get a strength that comes from someplace other than us. Suddenly, we're not living in our own power. It's the power that can transform a broken wreck of a man, like Peter was, into someone who would go on to write these words. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news. It, it's good news that was preached to you. And then he, that, that's the end of chapter 1. He starts chapter 2 this way. So, because of the gospel, because of that good news, be done with all deceit. Just be done with all that stuff. Put, put it away. He's saying that life in the kingdom of God, living in the kingdom of God, is the source for overcoming this need to lie. Friends, lying is just simply a, a false statement made with the intent of heart to deceive. Lying is not about the, the words that you choose. That's not what it's about. It's about what's happening in your heart. So the question is, how do we, as we're choosing to live in the kingdom of God, how does that work to help us stop lying? Well, here's the first thing that I want you to be captured by uh, in the kingdom of God. We, we love and serve a, a, a Trinitarian God. God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And our Trinitarian God strengthens us in truth. He strengthens us in truth. I want to show you that. Um, in John chapter 8, verse 31, it says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue to obey my teachings, you are truly my followers, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth is what sets us free. And not only that, the Bible tells us that God himself is truth. He cannot lie. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. That faith that Titus is writing about and that knowledge comes from the hope for life forever, which God promises to us before time began. And notice this, and God cannot lie. God is incapable of lying. It goes on, the scriptures do, to talk about the spirit of God. We've, we've seen the son, we've seen the father. Now look at this, the spirit of God not only leads us in the truth, but he is truth. John chapter 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will do what? Guide us into all truth. But it doesn't stop there. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 says, and the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. He doesn't just guide you into truth, he guides you to himself because he is the truth. That's who he is. And kingdom people, the Bible tells us, we walk by the Spirit, which means we walk in truth. That's what, we, that's what we do. So the Apostle John, we see later in his ministry, he is praising the saints when they are rejoicing. He rejoices because they're walking in truth. Third John uh, verse 3 says this, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. You've, you've walked away from deceit. 
The Apostle Paul urged all under his care. He, he writes this to the church at Ephesus. He says, therefore, each of you must put off all falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. And, and this is why. Because we are all members of one body. That's why. We're connected because Christ is in you and Christ is in me. Uh, I love the way that the uh, Living Bible translates this verse. It's really simple, direct. I understand this. Stop lying to each other. Tell the truth. Just stop this, do this. See, this is the starting line, putting away all falsehood. It's the starting line for followers of Jesus. But as we are apprenticed to Jesus, we start by putting away falsehood. But in, in reality, what we're doing is we're learning a new language. We're learning the language of the kingdom of God. We've got to do that. Because it affects all our forms of communication, not just this idea of lying, but all of our speech patterns. How many of you have ever had to learn a, a, a second language? You know, like maybe high school Spanish? You know, I, I did that. I can, I can speak Spanish. Watch this. Hola. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm done, but hola. You know, it, it, but the kingdom has a language that we need to learn to speak so that we'll stop lying to each other. Because it, we are members of one body, the body of Christ, Jesus in you and Jesus in me. We're the family of God. And, and people who are living in the kingdom of God together will rely on lying less to live together. We won't have to do that because the kingdom of God gives us reasons to, to forsake lying. Because we don't need to fear when we're living in the kingdom of God, when we're under the rule and reign of God. Now, will telling the truth still cause us discomfort? Yes. Will sometimes telling the truth be embarrassing? Yes. But when we're living in the kingdom of God more fully, we come to believe that God is the one who is going to protect us and provide for us. So life in the kingdom of God, as I grow in the language of the kingdom of God, here's something that it does. It will help me be free from fear. It will help me be free from fear. 1 John 4, 18 tells us there is no fear in love. When you're living in the kingdom of God and you're loving your neighbor as yourself and you're being loved by, by the good and beautiful God, in his kingdom we can choose not to lie because we're in harmony. When we lie as kingdom people, we're out of harmony. We're out of harmony with one another. We're out of harmony with the kingdom of God. We become out of harmony. It, it, it frustrates our fellowship with Jesus. It, 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 it impacts it that way. We lose that harmony. That's part of the consequence of not telling the truth. But when we tell the truth, when we choose to put away that falsehood and walk in the kingdom, the Bible tells us we have life in him and life with one another. Another principle, uh, as I grow in kingdom language, I begin to live from my true identity. I begin to live from my true identity more. I actually start believing that I'm loved by God. Paul writes to the church at Colossae about this. He says, do not lie to each other. Here's why. Since you have taken off the old self with its practices of lying and deceitfulness and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator, of, of Jesus. And I, I notice that second clause there. The, the reason this happens is because the old guy's dead. That's what baptism was about. The old person's dead. The new person's raised to walk with Christ. 
And we begin to realize Jesus delights in us and, and Jesus dwells in us. And because of that, I can put away this desire to deceive. I don't have to do that anymore. See, in God's kingdom, we strive to do something more than just not lie. We want our speech to be acceptable and beautiful to people and, and beautiful to God. You know, I think a regular prayer, I know it's a regular prayer I pray. I hope it's a regular prayer you might begin to pray in Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You, you, you long for that. I, I, I long for that. Now, is the bar set high on this? Well, yeah, it is. Be honest with all your words all the time. But here's what happens. It begins to flow from a heart that's being transformed and a heart that's being changed the longer we marinate in the Word of God, in the kingdom of God. And it happens naturally. Paul writes about this heart journey in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Here's the other part of this kingdom language. When I live and learn to walk and talk in kingdom language, communicate in it, I develop a whole system of grace-giving communication. A whole system of giving grace through my language, through my communication. First grace-giving communication is this, is I begin to speak with encouragement. I just begin, encouragement becomes more of the way of my life. When I see people hurting, I want to encourage them. This past week, I was facing something that was kind of difficult I was wrestling with and I reached out to a brother I just said I need you to pray for me I'm just kind of struggling uh, with this thing that uh, I'm, I'm dealing with right now and he sent back these words from Psalms 34 I want to read them to you it's not going to come up on the screen but it says this the Lord hears his people when they call to him for help he rescues them from all their trouble I needed to hear that it goes on verse 19 the righteous person faces many troubles but the Lord comes to our rescue each time Every time. You ever, you ever had moments when you felt like, I, I, can't talk, I can't ask him again? You can. He'll come, he wants to come to your rescue every time. He, here, here's what he did. He shared a principle about God my Father, my King, and his kingdom, and life in the kingdom. That I needed to hear. Those were words of encouragement, and they encouraged me. The second thing that grace-giving communication does is it speaks with kindness. It's kingdom kindness. Now, this involves some thought, folks. We gotta, we gotta be thoughtful about letting our words come out of our mouths in kindness, in, in empathy and sympathy towards people, that we begin you know, practicing the golden rule with our tongues and we speak to people the way we want to be spoken to when we find ourselves in those circumstances. In the kingdom of God, we start by putting away falsehood, but as we apprentice ourselves more to Jesus, it affects all of our kingdom communication. There's this great challenge that Paul gives on this issue in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. He says, instead, we will speak the truth in love. And notice this, when we do that, we grow in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Friends, we, we, we learn to grow in this. It will not happen overnight. It's not, it's not because you can predetermine, you know, I'm never going to do that again. That doesn't work. And a third way that grace-giving communication works is it helps change my speech this way, it, uh, my speech this way. It, it leads to kingdom curtailment. 
I know some of you are saying, my speaking is going to get curtailed. Yeah, listen to this word from God in, in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Proverbs 17 says this, a truly wise person uses few words. Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent with their mouth shut. They seem intelligent. See, one of the things that will happen as I grow in kingdom language and kingdom communication, I'll start curtailing the amount of words that I have to use. I, I will find I can use less words because I'm not trying to manipulate you anymore. I'm not trying to get you to do what I want you to do the way I want you to do it when I want you to do it. I can be free in relationship with you. I no longer have to rely on the lie to love and live in the kingdom of God because I'm at rest in Jesus, who the Bible tells us rested in his Father. Listen to how Peter, getting to the final end of his days in 1 Peter chapter Two, writes these words. He says, Christ who suffered for you is your example. He says, follow in his steps. He never sinned. He never told a lie. He never answered back when insulted. When he suffered, he did not threaten to get even. And notice how he did all of that. That's his communication. He did all of that because he left his case in the hand of God who always judges fairly. He left his case in God's hands. See, when you and I are comfortable with life in the kingdom of God, we, live, we leave our case in God's hands. We, we entrust to him. So if you're struggling with that battle with lies, or if you're struggling, you know, you always feel like when somebody insults you, you've got to answer them back. Or if you're struggling to defend yourself when somebody's making false accusations against you. Here's, here's what I want you to hear this morning as Jesus' words to you. We're going to close uh, after this. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. I'm going to ask the praise team. Y'all go ahead and start coming up. And maybe you want to close your eyes and just receive this from Jesus this morning. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus says to you, My Father has entrusted everything to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. Maybe you're carrying a heavy burden right now because, because you've been battling this, this deal with truth and lies. Jesus says, come to me if you're carrying a heavy burden. I will give you rest. If you've been trying to, to, to manipulate and control with your words and it has exhausted you, Jesus says, come to me, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my teaching. Take my way of life. Take, take kingdom living upon you. Jesus says, let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle of heart and you, you will find rest for your souls. You'll find rest from this battle this struggle with words, you'll find rest. I'll give you rest. Jesus, we come in this moment saying thank you. Thank you that we can have life in you and life in your kingdom that sets us free to rely on the lie, sets us free from that God and allows us to be able to put off that old self and put on the new self in you, Jesus to have life with one another, love with one another, acceptance with one another, including our failures. So we don't have to walk in shame and guilt because we've misused and manipulated with our words. So we come. 
maybe where you're at right now in this moment you just want to cry out to jesus and say jesus i i choose today in this moment to rely on you maybe maybe you're here for the very first time you realize jesus has a plan for your life as it relates to your relationships with other people and has found life in the kingdom of god and he may be calling you today to repent and turn to him so that you can find life everlasting in the here and now the bible says if you call on the name of the lord you'll be saved but jesus your word tells us that we can be set free set free from the bondage and the captivity of manipulation with our words we can be set free from that fear a feeling like we have to lie in order to be accepted and loved that we can rest instead in you trusting in you so god we come in this moment we come to celebrate that reality that we can have freedom in you we long for it our hearts long for it jesus set us free let us be people of truth It's in your name we pray. Amen.